0: It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, It always is one of the benefits or blessings of having hung around uh, a place for a while and having been privileged to teach and preach in churches is you got a lot of different places you come and it feels like home. Uh, That's how it always feels to me uh, coming back to Brentwood where my kids spent so many happy years and where it's been uh, so good for me to get to know uh, so many of you. There is a danger I feel we should all acknowledge as we begin our time in the Word together this morning. The danger is when you invite a Bible professor to preach, there is always the danger that you come expecting a sermon and what you get is a lecture. Um, It's an occupational hazard. I haven't figured out a way to avoid this uh, in three decades of doing it. Uh, it won't be as long as a typical college lecture, if that's, if, that's any, uh, if that's any encouragement. And I notice that in the order of worship, there is a place for sermon notes. Uh, one thing you might think about doing to survive whatever's about to happen for the next 20 or so minutes uh, is uh, you might think about noting scriptures that are mentioned. I'm gonna mention a few. Preachers and professors say a lot There are a lot of words that tend to be shared in contexts like this. It can be difficult to tell apart the words you want to hang on to from the words you can let go. I know it's a problem. I would fix it if I could. One thing you can do is if the preacher refers to the Bible, you can jot that down. We we have pretty high confidence that that much at least of what the preacher refers to will be worth reflecting on. Uh, So, uh, as we come together uh, in the word this morning, I'm very pleased to be with you, uh, perhaps at this time of year especially, as we prepare to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus and the significance of that coming for our world and for our lives. Uh, And in that vein this morning, I thought we might turn to what I think is the simplest and yet the most profound sentence that we find in the New Testament, about Jesus coming among us, and what it means for the world and for our lives. From Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter that we have, um, reading from chapter four beginning in verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So ends the reading. May the Lord add a blessing to this reading of his word. This is Paul writing to a church that needed a lot of reminders The Corinthians, it seems to me, from reading Paul's correspondence with them and reading about them in the book of Acts, the Corinthians, I think, might have fit pretty well in contemporary American society. They were easily distracted, they were easily confused, they easily got pulled off center and lost track of the message that Paul had shared with them and what that message called on them to do in response. And so in writing these two longish letters to them, Paul frequently has occasion to take them back to basics and to remind them, where did we start? What did we agree on at the beginning of our association? When I shared with you my gospel, Paul calls it, my message that I have to bring with you, what did I tell you? And when you Corinthians responded to that message, what did you do and say? When you believed what I taught, when you accepted it in baptism, what did you say? What did you commit yourself to? And in this passage, what Paul does is summarize the message that he brought brought them. He boils it down to three or four words, depending on whether you're reading in Greek or in English. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the message that Paul brought the Corinthians. That's the message that changed their lives or that would change their lives if they would open themselves to the work of God that comes to us through that message. Jesus Christ is Lord. Three points, so it's a good orthodox sermon, right? Paul Paul knew how to preach. Jesus, Paul came and told the Corinthians about. Jesus. Is the name of a human being uh, born about 6 BC that's a little footnote that we won't pursue uh, this morning but you can look it up uh, in uh, on Wikipedia and elsewhere Jesus the name given him by his mother and his legal father Joseph Jesus, Jesus meaning The Lord saves. The Lord saves his people. This is the name of a child brought up in a devout Jewish household, devoted to the God of Israel, committed to him in faith, committed to the hopes that the people of Israel cherished on the basis of the scriptures that God had revealed to them. Jesus, that's who Paul most wanted to tell people about as he moved all across the Mediterranean, across Greece, across Asia Minor, in Syria and Cilicia, on to Rome and beyond Rome, he hoped to go to Spain. Jesus is the person that Paul most wanted you to know about and to learn about. And it was harder to find out about Jesus in Paul's day than it is now. In the same book that we've just read from, you can flip back a few pages and you can read four different accounts of the life of Jesus. You can learn all sorts of details about his life and his ministry. The Corinthians only knew about Jesus what Paul and his coworkers told them. There weren't books that told the story yet. Those were yet to be written. The gospels lay in the future and knowledge about Jesus, once you found out about him, was precious. Can you imagine what it would be like to come to church with the hope, maybe with the expectation, if there was somebody like Paul or Apollos or Barnabas scheduled to visit this Sunday, maybe this morning we'll learn something new about Jesus. Maybe we'll hear a story from his ministry that we've never heard before, someone that he healed or cleansed or blessed, a wonder that he performed. Maybe we'll gain an insight into his death and resurrection that we've not heard before. Maybe Apollos has a different light to cast on the story than we've heard from Paul and Barnabas. Imagine coming to church with expectancy and excitement to learn something about Jesus. That's what it was like going to church in the first century. So, Paul told you, if you came, Paul told you something about Jesus. One of the things he told you was that Jesus was known or could be understood as Christ, Um, Christ was not Jesus' last name. It it wasn't there under C uh, in the Nazareth phone book. Christ was a description, a designation. In in fact, if if you were a Greek listening in Corinth and you, you overheard Paul telling people about this story, what you would hear would at first glance sound something to you like Jesus the smeared one is Lord. Jesus, the one who had oil or something smeared on his face, poured out on his head. Paul wants to tell us about a fellow named Jesus who got smeared. That's an odd message to to be introduced to, an odd message to be attracted to. If you gave Paul a hearing, you would find out that having oil poured or anointed or smeared on you was a way in the religion of Israel and other religions to mark out a person or a thing for special service. You could smear a prophet with oil or a priest with oil. Uh, You'd smear a person out to mark them out as persons dedicated to God for that service. You could do it with an object. You could do it with temple furniture or temple architecture. It was a way of saying this person, this thing belongs to God and is dedicated for God's service. It's not to be used, he or, or it isn't to be used for any other purpose. He. She, it, belongs to God now and is to be used only for his service, only for his glory. And that's what Paul told you God had done by pouring out his spirit on the Lord Jesus. We have the image in the story of Jesus' baptism in the Gospels. As Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens opened, he sees a dove descending on him and he hears a voice as he is anointed with the power of God's spirit in the form of a dove, he hears a voice telling him, you are my beloved son, in you I have been well pleased. This statement of God's echoes passages from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 42, from Psalm 2 in which the king, the one who would come to reign over God's people, to right all that is wrong, to restore all creation to God's intention for it, the king was marked out by anointing as God's special servant, indeed as God's son, as the one who has the kind of intimate knowledge of God and his will that you get not from reading books and quoting passages of Scripture the way profs do, but by growing up in God's house, by living in God's presence. That's who Jesus was. That's who God had declared Jesus to be by anointing him, by pouring his spirit out upon him. And so Jesus was empowered, entrusted with all authority in heaven and on earth to enact all of God's will and to make it a reality. To bring about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Isaiah chapters 65 and 66. To bring to us the life that God created us to live from um, from the time of the creation of Adam and Eve. So that's who Jesus was. He was the Christ, the anointed, the one born to be king, as Dorothy Sayers put it in the title of a play that makes terrific Christmas season reading, by the way, The Man Born to be King. If you want a fresh presentation of the gospel that can get you excited to learn things about Jesus, Dorothy Sayers, uh, the man Uh, the man born to be king. That's danger of inviting a prof, you get a book recommendation in the middle of the sermon. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, Jesus the one born to be king, Paul taught the Corinthians, is Lord. That's a deceptively simple word. Everybody could make sense of it. In Paul's audience. The Lord is the master. Um, He is the one with authority over the household or over the kingdom. He is the one who by right tells people what to do. In our world, the Lord is roughly the equivalent of the boss, the one in charge, the one who can tell us what needs to be done. And yet, that word Lord has a deeper significance that Paul would have to explain to us if we were sitting there in Corinth and hadn't grown up in synagogue uh, hearing the scriptures read and explained. The word Lord in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the, the Corinthians and others would have had access to if they had access to any Uh, uh, text of the Old Testament at all. In the Greek version, the word Lord serves as a stand-in for the covenant name of God. The name that Moses, uh, the name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. The name that was so sacred that Jews in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul wouldn't pronounce it. The Name is only said in Israel once a year as the high priest goes in on the Day of Atonement and quotes scripture blessing Israel with that name. But for the rest of the time, it's not said, and if you were reading in Greek, teaching in Greek, what you would have said instead of that covenant name of God revealed to Moses is you would have said, Lord. Um, in the, the daily prayer, the Shema uh, recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter six. In the Greek version, it's hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. <clears throat> so it's a very special name and it's a name that Paul repeatedly uses as he teaches to describe not just the Father but also and especially the Son. As we read in a little earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter eight and uh, verse four, indeed Paul says, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth as in fact, there are many gods and many lords that people worship. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's 1 Corinthians chapter eight, verses five and six. It's a passage that repays really careful attention in unpacking, we don't have time to give it that attention this morning. But if you look at it and compare it to Deuteronomy chapter six and verses four and following, that daily prayer, the Shema, hear O Israel, you find that what Paul is doing is reworking the Shema so that Jesus is included in Israel's devotion to God as the Lord. God is the Father from whom all things come, the source of all being, the source of all that we are. Jesus is the Lord through whom all things come. Jesus is the one through whom God gives us all that we have and through whom God is remaking us into the image of Christ. It's a remarkable little statement that Paul makes. And so this statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, tells us that this human being, Jesus, is more than just a human being. He is the presence of God among us. He is the creator, the one from whom and through whom we were created in our midst, showing us his will, not just telling us, not just giving us a list of things to do, but showing us how to live to fulfill the creator's purpose for our life. What a a remarkable gift, as Paul says, what an inexpressible gift that we give thanks to God for in this season of the year. And so Jesus Christ is Lord in the very mundane sense that he's the one who tells us how to live and we follow his instructions. He is also the Lord in the sense of the one who has all authority over all things and us too. And who can show us the life that we were created to live indeed who has come among us to show us that life um, being obedient, Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 and following, even to the point of death, even to the point of sacrificing his created life so that he might bring us into fellowship with his father and might show us and teach us the life that we were created to live. You ever had a bad boss Anybody? No show of hands. Don't want to embarrass anybody. Uh, But those of us who have, you know, had more than two or three or four or five jobs have probably experienced, at some point, having a boss who was not ideal, not the best, not optimal. You know the boss who doesn't really think about the group enterprise and our place in it, um, but focuses on his or her, Advantages? What's in it for? What's in it for them? Not what's in it for the whole enterprise. Not what's in it for us. I, I think we, you know, we we. Some of us may have some experience of bosses like that. Anybody wants to share war stories? We can meet uh, uh, outside uh, after services and compare notes. Have you ever had a good boss? I've had a few. And when you've had a good boss. You find your energies directed toward where they can help others and where they can fulfill you and you can see the purpose that you're serving in the organization. Jesus is the best boss. He is the boss who can show us how not just to organize a particular enterprise uh, directed towards supplying people with a product or a service. He's the boss, the master, the guide, who can show us what we're here to do comprehensively. He can show us what it looks like to live a life devoted to the love of God and the love of others. That's what we're here for. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he doesn't preach himself. He preaches Jesus Christ as Lord and he preaches himself and his coworkers as servants for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of others. That's the life that Jesus came to show us. That's the life that Jesus will show us. That's the life that he will knit us together in in the church if we will open ourselves to the power of his spirit and allow our lives to be transformed by his love. That's the Jesus that we proclaim every Sunday as we gather around the table That's the Jesus whose coming we celebrate as Christmas Day approaches. That's the Jesus whom we proclaim as Lord now as we stand and as we sing.